Hello, and welcome to a special Halloween-themed episode of Endeavors. Re-airing a couple of favorite spook-themed interviews from years past, folklorist Bob Curran breaks down all things macabre and goth and talks about the history of horror, as well... Ashley C. Williams is an actress best known for her appearance in the cult film, The Human Centipede. That's all coming up on Endeavors. You're listening to Endeavors Radio with your host from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, Dan McPeak. I suppose it's a little late in the day to be posting a Halloween special, but nevertheless, as it is my favorite holiday, here we are. Both of the interviews you hear today originally aired as part of the same show back in 2017. My first guest is Dr. Bob Curran. He is a folklorist and Shanahi from Northern Ireland who has written a number of books on vampires, Encyclopedia of the Undead, Walking with the Green Men, Celtic Lore and Legend, and Lost Lands, Forgotten Realms, which were all published by New Page Books. Some of his other books include Bloody Irish, Great Irish Vampire Stories, The Truth About the Leprechaun, Werewolves, A Field Guide to Shapeshifters, Lycanthropes, and Man Beasts, Zombies, A Field Guide to the Walking Dead, Dark Fairies, Man Made Monsters, and The World's Creepiest Places. Bob Curran lives in the mountains of County Down in Northern Ireland. This is my conversation with Dr. Bob Curran, folklorist extraordinaire from 2017. Dr. Bob Curran, hello. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here today. It's grand to be on your show, Dan. So you, you're, you're a, a folklorist and, and, and somewhat of an expert in uh, uh, monsters and, and, and myths. Well, I write about monsters and myths. Uh, I was brought up in a very, very superstitious part of the world. And I suppose it has got into my uh, my genes and into my being uh, to take an interest in some of the stuff which uh, may be going on around us and we're not fully aware of. Uh, now, I know many feel that Halloween started as uh, a, a pagan holiday, but how did it sort of transform from the Day of the Dead into the celebration that is known today? Well, Dan, uh, we are celebrating the ancient Celtic feast of Samhain, S-A-M-H-A-I-N, 
which uh, means actually the end of summer. And that heralds in a dark period. Uh, well, uh, we have just, uh, I'm not sure about you in Canada, but we have just undergone a time change where we move from British summertime uh, into wintertime. Uh, and that um, has, was always the case around this time. People were coming into days when the sun was getting, seemed to be getting further away. The days were getting darker and, and the nights were getting longer. And it was uh, a time when darkness uh, ruled the world. This is Samhain, which stretched all the way from uh, the 1st of November to the 2nd of February, which was Emok, and is now known as St. Bridget's Day, uh, or Candlemas. So this was uh, an ancient pagan custom. Uh, It was thought that at this time, the veil between the worlds, that is, the world of the living and possibly the world of the dead, was very thin because of the darkness and because of the cold. And, the, uh, and so um, the, the Celts lit great bonfires to drive away, uh, to restore heat to the sun and to drive away uh, demons and spirits which might be in the darkness. Now, originally, uh, Halloween was was not at this time at all. Halloween was uh, celebrated on the 13th of May. Uh, and uh, it was uh, about uh, things growing, uh, actually, which is why we have apples. I don't know whether in Canada you have, well, uh, I know you have, actually, dunking for apples. Yes. Um, this is how apples become involved in the Pope Gregory uh, IV, round about the 8th century, decided that all these old pagan feasts, such as Samhain and all, were beginning uh, to become widely celebrated. So he began to change them and brought uh, them into the Christian calendar. Uh, He had a problem with Halloween because... uh, this coincided with an ancient Roman feast called Feralia, which celebrated the Day of the Dead. And uh, so he moved Halloween from the 13th of May to the end of October. And uh, you had all sorts of, uh, you were supposed to have three days of contemplation and praying for the dead. Now, everybody thinks that trick-or-treat comes from America. Trick-or-treat doesn't come from America at all. It comes from uh, Europe and from here in Ireland because um, uh, poor people used to go around the houses uh, 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 coming up to Halloween, and they were given a soul cake. Now, that was simply a, a, a piece of wheaten uh, or uh, cornbread or wheaten bread or, or something like that. Uh, and uh, this was, they were given uh, these by rich families in the, on the understanding that they would pray for the souls of the dead. It was known as souling 
or gazing. Some of these people would uh, dress up. And in fact, there's a reference to it, tricking or treating, in 1593, and no less a person than William Shakespeare in his play, Two Gentlemen of Verona. He mentions gazing. Uh, and um, that was receiving the soul kick. So gradually, uh, a pagan festival is beginning to slide into a Christian festival. And uh, although nowadays we don't um, pr- uh, have three days of praying for the dead and stuff like that, uh, it's, it's celebrated. It's supposed to be a time when the dead are on our minds. And uh, it harks back. There's many pagan elements among it. For example, it's uh, apples, which actually comes from the 13th of May, when uh, it was uh, apple harvest. Uh, And the giving of uh, tricks and treats through the soul cakes, or sometimes presents were given... um, by rich houses to poor people, uh, and um, this was to ensure good fortune throughout the year. I remember my grandmother used to bake an apple tart uh, around uh, Halloween, and then that uh, she used to put a sixpence. And whoever found the sixpence in the apple tart uh, was. Uh, sort of guaranteed good fortune and money throughout the year. And that was an old pagan method of uh, prophesying the future. Um, the Irish are, are well-known storytellers. They're probably the greatest in the world, and Bram Stoker, an Irishman, basically invented the, the, the horror genre. But what I think a lot of people don't realize is that Dracula was very much inspired by uh, the myth of uh, the myth of, of our talk. How mu- how much of that went into went into Dracula? Do you think? Well, now our talk was, uh, in case your listeners don't know, our talk was a Celtic chieftain who was supposed to drink blood, and he was slain, and his grave lies. Uh, roughly about 11 or 12 miles from where I'm speaking to you now. But uh, certainly this was one of the, we think that this was one of the influences which guided Bram Stoker whenever he began to write Dracula. Uh, There were a number of um, uh, uh, elements. For uh, example, uh, Stoker had toured in America with Sir Henry Irving. And he had been very interested in the Mercy Brown case in Rhode Island and the famous vampire ladies of Rhode Island in America. But certainly the story of Auertach would have been very, very familiar to him, particularly as Stoker himself was very friendly with uh, uh, Sir William and Lady Wilde, who were actually the mother uh, mother and father of Oscar Wilde, who lived not too far away from him in Marion Square in Dublin. And at night he would go over and exchange stories uh, and old folk tales. Now it is known that Lady Wilde, who was a great collector of folklore, uh, knew the story of our attack, and it is quite probable that um, 
the story was recounted, and he used that in Dracula. Certainly, uh, there are many Irish elements in, in, in Dracula. Um, Stoker himself had never been to Transylvania. Right. Uh, but if you read the opening chapters of Dracula, what he is describing is uh, pre-famine Ireland, with the, uh, the lonely roads, the scattered houses, the small villages, superstitious peasants, the shrines at the crossroads, uh, people like that. And that is actually pure uh, pre-famine Ireland. So uh, Ireland is now beginning to play a, a, a bit of, or I should say a significant part, in Dracula's uh, develop, or Stoker's development of Eastern Europe, a place to which he had never been, and he relied on a sort of um, pamphlets and stuff describing the area, and he got it wrong. Because if you drive up uh, the Borgo Pass, as uh, Jonathan Harker did, from the Golden Krona Inn in Bistritz, uh, you're traveling out of Transylvania and into Moldavia. So Stoker's, uh, Dracula's castle was actually in Moldavia. But uh, there's a number, there are certainly a number of castles in Transylvania uh, associated with them, particularly Bran Castle. So uh, Stoker got uh, uh, the general area right. Uh, now, I know you, you mentioned that you live close to the Grave of Aratak. I know you also live relatively near the, the, the Giant's Causeway. Um, that's, that's also another legend. What's the story behind that? I mean, how did we sort of come to tell tales of really, really giant, huge people? Well, in case, once again, uh, and your listeners don't know, uh, the, the Giant's Causeway, uh, which uh, is about seven miles from where I am at the moment, uh, stretched from North Antrim in Northern Ireland into uh, allegedly into Scotland. Actually, it's supposed to have went into the Isle of Staffa. Uh, now, the word Staffa means the island of the pillars, and you have a series of hexagonal volcanic uh, basalt pillars rising up. Uh, there are three giant causeways in the world. Uh, one is here in Northern Ireland, one is uh, actually on the island of Staffa, and the other, would you believe, is in Vietnam. Uh, but the one here was supposed to have been built by a famous Irish giant called Finn McCool, who was at war with uh, a, another Scottish giant who lived on the island of Staffa. And uh, he built, uh, in order to get to each other, they began to build a causeway. They met in the middle. There was a massive battle. Many of the stones were lost. And Ben and Donner, the Scottish giant, was killed. And uh, Finn McCool returned to Ireland. Uh, there have always been stories of big men, uh, particularly along the north coast of Ireland here. Uh, for example, uh, about five miles from where I'm sitting. There's an old church um, where uh, they were sinking a pulpit. And now this is actually recorded in the Ordnance Survey Memoirs for the area. They were actually digging a pulpit, or sinking a pulpit for a new church. And they unearthed um, a skull of a man which was three times that of a normal man. And they became greatly frightened by it and took it to the local minister, who said, rebury it, and never mention this again. So it was reburied. 
there it may be common uh, along uh, the Irish coast, uh, the Northern Irish coast, that there were quite big men, uh, the and quite big women as well, because the most famous um, Irish giantess uh, comes from Portrush, which is uh, about four miles from where I am. Um, the, she was Mary Murphy, and we know she existed because she was presented to the King and Queen in London in 1701. Uh, and uh, she came from the island of Port Rush, and she stood seven feet in her stocking soles and was very good-looking down. In fact, men had to stand on boxes to kiss her. So oh. there you are. There you are. Um, we we we've talked about the 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 folklore history of, of of Dracula, but how much of of our other sort of common monsters, you know, zombies, werewolves, uh, imps, leprechauns, Frankenstein, things like that. How much of those stories came out of uh, folklore and and sort of traditional uh, histories? Well, in order to answer that, Dan, uh, yeah, uh, you have to say what folklore does. Folk, uh, folklore provides a context for us to explain things that we can't uh, rationally explain to ourselves. So, uh, and it addresses a whole number of questions for which we have no real answer. For example, uh, you mentioned vampires and zombies. Now, what function does a belief in vampires and zombies do? Well, it, it addresses the question of what happens after death? Is it possible to come back? Because we were talking about Halloween. Now, uh, it was believed that God permitted certain very righteous people to come back uh, on Halloween night and enjoy some of the things which they had enjoyed when they were alive, like a drama whiskey, a pipe, uh, a hot meal. Uh, and I remember my grandmother setting an extra place at the, at the table on Halloween night in case uh, some local soul would be wandering past and, and could come in. Now, the notion of the vampire uh, uh, addresses these questions. What, what uh, is it possible to return from the grave? Uh, and if so, in what form? And once again, this is the zombie. Uh, the werewolf, which you mentioned, uh, addresses uh, um, an even more fundamental question about ourselves, which says, where does the beast be uh, end and the man begin? So, uh, or is it possible that underneath uh, our great veneer of civilization, there is still a savage beast lurking about? And would that, will that emerge uh, from, um, uh, from, from ourselves uh, if we were, let's say, in a terrible rage? Uh, I am reminded of, uh, uh, I think it's Clark Ashton Smith, who, uh, of the man who went to the sorcerer and said, can you uh, bring me up a beast? Uh, and he said, I can bring you a, be a beast without magic, he says, simply by smiting you across the face. Uh, so 
that, uh, that, uh, that addresses the notion of uh, the beast. Where does the beast begin? Is there a beast lurking in every one of us and c- cannot be brought forth? The thing about um, leprechauns and so now that could uh, could be very different again. Those could be the memories of an Aboriginal race which lived alongside us. Now we're continually finding stuff out about our early ancestors as evolution uh, took many twists and turns al- along uh, the evolutionary path. Uh, we know that there were men with slightly bigger hair, uh, skulls than us. We know there were Neanderthals who had very, uh, possibly very different facial characteristics. And we know that there were small people because uh, about five or six years ago, there was um, a, a, a discovery made of Homo flores who were very small people, who existed uh, possibly in the Philippines. Uh, But uh, possibly small people, just like big people, were uh, remnants of race memories, because we know there were giants uh, back in the past. Uh, So maybe there is a race memory here, uh, which uh, harks back to a, a small people. So what these folkloric questions address are very basic questions in ourselves. What happens after death? Can we come back? Uh, if so, in what form? Uh, either uh, as ourselves or as a zombie or as a vampire? Uh, where does the beast be, uh, begin and the man end? In uh, uh, the motive of the werewolf? And perhaps some race memory of a different sort of people from and not of leprechauns and fairies. Um, moving away a bit from from beings, you've also written about um, the world's creepiest places. Uh, yes. Uh, I'm curious, what is the the creepiest place you have ever visited? I know one that comes up a lot is the uh, haunted forest of Romania. Yes. And I, uh, that's very spectacular. Uh, can I give you two yes. creepy places? The first is actually uh, a castle. And it is, uh, uh, because I'm Celtic in nature, I'm going to pick two Celtic places. Right. Uh, a, a lot of places are creepy. But uh, can I pick two Celtic places? The first is a castle in County Offaly in the Republic of Ireland. And that is Lep Castle, or Leap Castle. Uh, And it is supposed to be the most haunted uh, castle in Western Europe. Uh, Now, uh, it was held originally by uh, the O'Carroll clan uh, back in the 1500s. The O'Carrolls were driven out of Ireland... Uh, uh, and settled actually in Maryland. They were given a tract of land in Maryland and the first Catholic bishop in America was actually John O'Carroll. So the O'Carrolls held this uh, area which in Offaly is called Ely O'Carroll, O'Carroll's territory. Uh, And uh, we went to to the 
castle because there's a, a section of known as the Bloody Chapel in which Tygo Carroll in the 1500s cut his brother's throat uh, while his brother, who was a priest, was kneeling across the altar. And because he had committed a, a great blasphemy, um, the, uh, his soul could not enter heaven or hell. And uh, he is confined to the bloody chapel. Now, at night, the people will tell you that a light shines from the bloody chapel. So, um, uh, RT, the, the, the local te- uh, Irish television, asked me with a camera crew to go down and spend a night between the hours of one and two, uh, sorry, midnight and one, sorry, when uh, this light is supposed to appear uh, within the bloody cha- chapel. Now, it is a ghostly place. It's actually at the top of a tower, and you're climbing up all sorts of uh, different sizes of steps. Uh, and some of the old tower houses, uh, different sizes of steps were used as a, as a defense mechanism because if a man was watching his feet, he couldn't see you coming around the corner and cutting your head off. So we went up, and the, uh, it was a creepy place. Uh, myself and a cameraman walked up um, the steps because there's no electricity on the place and candles had been set on the steps and massive shadows everywhere going up a, a circular staircase. And up at the top, there's just a wall of solid darkness and you're walking into that. And uh, the cameraman was behind me and uh, suddenly something large and white rose up over my head. And I turned around and I said, Richard, did you see that? And he was halfway down the stairs. And because uh, I think I know what it is. And uh, I went in and they're perched on a piece of masonry. Well, it was a large white owl which had been nesting. But it was certainly, it certainly was a creepy place. That's Lep Castle in County Offaly. Uh, the second uh, place that I found very, and I genuinely did find this really creepy, uh, and not for the reasons which you may think, um, but it was Ellian Moor, which is an island uh, off uh, the western coast of Scotland. It's uh, part of the Outer Hebrides. And uh, in 1900, three, uh, there's a lighthouse on the island. In 1900, three keepers disappeared from the island uh, in the middle of a storm, and nobody knows what became of them. People say they've been washed over, but there's all sorts of uh, reasons why that couldn't have happened. Uh, and uh, I went out on my own to the Alien Moor. There's nothing on the island but the ruins of an old chapel and the lighthouse, which is now an automatic lighthouse. And I went out there, and there's nothing. There's not even trees on the island. And it is uh, it has a whole number of what are called geos, or gullies, through which the wind comes uh, in from the sea. Now, I was dropped there at about 8 o'clock in the morning by a boatman, and he said, I'll come back for you, he says, at 5 o'clock at night. And I was the only person on the island. And the loneliness and the uh, uh, massive seas around you and uh, stuff like that really freaked me out uh, because 
you had nobody to talk to, uh, you had nobody to say, what was that? Say, all you had were the cries of the seabirds, the sound of the wind in the gullies, and it was like the end of the world. It was like you were the last man alive. The boatman didn't come back until six o'clock. And by that time, I was beginning to climb uh, the cliffs, if you like. Um, but uh, it, is an eerie, it is an eerie place. They never found the three keepers, and they don't know what happened to them. Uh, in fact, the um, the island has been made the object of an opera about the vanishing keepers in 1900. Wow. Uh, I know that you're uh, a big fan of, of, of Lovecraft. You've written a book about, about him. Um, what is your favorite Lovecraft tale? I could go through a whole number of them. Uh, I, I find Lovecraft a difficult man uh, as a person to worm to, but his, uh, there is no doubt that his um, stories have influenced uh, the, horror, uh, the, uh, the horror genre today. Uh, and I would think my first, uh, my favorite would be The Color Out of Space, because it's about a, something creeping through an entire community and altering stuff. And I think that is rather chilling. I think uh, that uh, all, uh, it is a metaphor for all sorts of things which could be happening today. Uh, sort of uh, mindsets, uh, uh, things like that, which has affected the political system, which has affected the social systems. And uh, I, I, I think we're getting into dangerous times, and that is beginning to permeate through society. Would you you said he's he's he can be uh, difficult to to read. Would you say you have a a favorite horror author then, or or would it be Lovecraft? Well. My, uh, if you ask me what my favorite horror authors are, I'm going to pick two, and I'm going to pick two Celtic ones yet again. I'm sorry, this is coming across from, uh, as, as a Celtic um, uh, picking of, uh, of authors, but uh, there's something in, in these, both these authors which appeal to me. And uh, two, uh, the two my two favourites are short stories. Uh, the first is by an Irishman, which is, uh, which I'm sure you know is Joseph Sheridan Lee Fanau. And the story that I would pick from that, uh, he has written a whole number of stories and uh, some great stories. Um, but the story that I would pick. Uh, is the lesser known one, which is uh, an extraordinary incident in the life of Shulkin the painter. Now, Shulkin, Gottfried Shulkin actually existed, and I have seen one of his paintings, A Girl with a Candle. And uh, I am told that Ethan Howe saw that and wrote the story around it. Uh, and it concerns uh, the story of, of Gottfried Shulkin, who is um, apprenticed to Gerard Dow who's a famous Dutch master. Uh, Schalken is a Dutch painter. Uh, and um, he is greatly enamored 
of um, Dow's uh, niece, Rosa. Uh, but uh, this gentleman uh, turns up and uh, pays Jared Dow for her hand in marriage. This is Wilkin van der Housen. And Wilkin van der Housen is dead. Uh, she, na- she never really sees his face until the very end. And now that paralleled a story which my grandfather told me about a, a, a lady who in South Armagh who was allegedly married to a living corpse. Uh, stories of marriage between the living and the dead are quite uh, common in some parts of Ireland. Uh, the second one, uh, which is not unconnected to that, is by Robert Louis Stevenson, who actually wrote Treasure Island. And it is Thrawn Janet. Uh, and it is not so well known because it's written in the Scottish vernacular. But uh, it concerns the Reverend Myrtle Solis, who uh, takes, who becomes a minister in the parish of Balweary in Scotland and takes to him uh, as his housekeeper uh, a woman called Janet McClure, who turns out to be a servant of the devil and is literally a walking corpse again. And during a storm, she comes from uh, from the minister uh, for the minister and sends him mad. So those, those are uh, uh, two stories. Uh, they're gothic in the extreme, but I enjoy those sort of stuff. Uh, now... Could you pick a, a, a favorite horror movie? Uh, yes. Uh, whenever you say horror, uh, I tend to think that these um, movies are gore splattered. And uh, this seems to be, I'm not fussed on those. Uh, and the uh, uh, film that I would pick, actually, uh, this will show you, Dan, how old I am. Uh, would be from 1961, and it is Jack Clayton, uh, The Innocents. That is based on a story by by one of your uh, by an American writer called Henry James, uh, called The Turn of the Screw, and it's about the corruption of innocence by by two ghost uh, two ghosts. One uh, it's filmed in, a, in black and white in a massive Gothic house. Uh, and it is about the corruption of two children, uh, a gover- and the terrifying of a governess. Uh, the children are corrupted by a former governess, the ghost of a former governess, and the, the ghost of a uh, of a handyman called Peter Quint, uh, who uh, ha- had an affair with the governess, and it uh, it is an insidious, creeping, uh, the horror builds. The other one which I uh, would uh, like to pick would be Robert Wise's 1963 uh, Black and White Again, The Haunting, which is based on Shirley Jackson's The uh, Haunting of Hill House. And I think there has been uh, a, uh, both these films have been reshot somewhere about the 1990s. I haven't seen the, I have both the original films with me. So those are the movies that I would pick.
Well, uh, it's definitely been a, a, a great, uh, great birth of knowledge uh, here today on, on the history of Halloween. Uh, Dr. Bob Curran, thanks so much for your time this morning, huh? Don, it was a pleasure to speak to you, and maybe we'll speak again at some point. Yes, absolutely. Look after yourself. All right, you too. Thanks. Take care. I. That was my conversation with folklorist and historian Dr. Bob Curran. Okay, this is the song Lotion by Greens Keepers. From 2017, that was my conversation with folklorist Dr. Bob Curran. In 2009, a new kind of horror film was born from the Dutch writer, director, and co-producer Tom Six. It was infamous from the get-go and to this day remains a controversial yet cult favorite. It is, of course, the human centipede, now known as the human centipede first sequence and as the first of a trilogy. If you're not familiar, in it, two American tourists in Germany are drugged and involuntarily detained by a crazed surgeon when they seek help at his house after they get a flat tire. Dr. Joseph Heider's dream is to create a human centipede. The subsequent films were even more gory than the first. One actress who appeared in The Human Centipede and was in fact the survivor, the final girl in Horror Troops, was Ashley C. Williams, who, since The Human Centipede, has made a career appearing in horror films, including Celine Hollow and Julia. I spoke with Ashley also in 2017 about what's it like working in horror and the legacy of the human centipede. Lisa Williams, hello, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so you're you're coming to town uh, in in a couple weeks uh, for the Horrorama Festival here here in Toronto. Uh, you've you've sort of made made a made a living made a made a career out of uh, out out of horror films. Coming coming to to a festival like this where it's about the genre and and, and you get to interact uh, with, with the fans, what are you looking forward to most? Interacting with the fans. <laughs> the fans are what make uh, being in the so-called horror genre um, like the best thing ever because they are super loyal and so fun and just they they love horror movies and I, I don't think I've met anybody um, who loves a genre so much um, and gets so excited 
um, about horror films. So it's it's just such a fun time when I do conventions because you get people coming up to your table who, you know, love your films for one thing, but they're just excited and excited to meet you, and and that's what I love. You know, hor- horror films. Are- Horror films have been around for close to 100 years now in, in sort of all different styles. And, and we're definitely seeing a, a, an evolution of the type of horror films that are being made. But what do you like most about wor- working with, within, that, within that genre? Well, you know, honestly, I've only done um, two horror films that um, have become known, so to speak. Um, and... I, um, it's kind of a, it's kind of a touchy subject for me because I was a part of a, a horror film, you know, The Human Centipede, that was known for its, of course, um, controversial subject, um, but also just how unique it was and different, and that is what I look for when I do a horror film, um, because there's so much out there that gets made um, that's just overdone and redone and not unique and um, and just for ex- you know um, exploiting you know the female body or um, in my case script horror scripts that are sent to me are very uh, much geared towards the the female victim and um, and her not surviving or she gets killed off you know three fourths of the way in so. Um, over the years since I've done uh, The Human Centipede, my mindset on the horror genre has, has changed a bit, and the, the, the roles that I take now are um, more so uh, empowering the female. Um, if I do a horror film, I want her to uh, show her strength and, and live and um, be there till the end and just show how powerful women can be. So um, that's... I have seen that more so um, these days. You know, people are, are, I think, a bit sick of of the constant um, cabin in the woods type of film that's made. So there are just more people who are making um, different types of of horror films, um, like Darren Aronofsky's Mother, um, which I saw recently and just, he's my hero. (laughs) So it's... It's films like that that really show um, how unique uh, you can tell a, a horror story, something that's really, truly horrifying. It, it strikes me that, that horror films are one types of film that, that can uniquely comment on sort of whatever is is, is happening in, in society. Not that they have to, but they, they are often... Um, successful at that have you have have you noticed um the 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 societal relevance the increasing societal relevance of 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 horror films i think so not as not as much as i'd like to see i think definitely the movie mother is a great example of um of how that can you know inspire others to to use you know metaphors and symbols and things like that to um to tell a story uh and the way that the the world is now is pretty much a horror story in itself. So, I mean, that was kind of an ode to what's happening these days. And I think, um, you know, some people, they want to go to the movies to escape that. So they're not necessarily going to like a movie like Mother um, because they don't, 
they don't want to um, be faced with the reality of what's happening. Um, and, you know, so I think it's a, it's a hit or miss because I know that a lot of diehard horror fans, they love, um, you know, the entertainment aspect of the horror genre. Um, the girl running through the woods, um, the blood, the gore. Um, so the more sort of fantastical a horror movie is, the better for 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 fans like that who like the genre. Um, but I think for people like me, you know, I, I didn't uh, grow up liking the genre. I think when I did The Human Centipede, I kind of fell into it and um, started watching a lot more horror films just because I was being interviewed so much about um, about about horror films and you know what what my favorites were and things like that so I started to um you know to find the the ones that I liked but they weren't the typical um type of gory horror film that a lot of people like um I'm I'm more on the like the intelligent um more quality type of like intellectual type of horror um that is like the movie mother that that sort of um you know uh, taps into society and, and what's happening in the world uh, currently. Given the the the, the, the plot line of, of the human centipede, how, how surprised were you guys when it sort of took off like it did and, and, and became this massive hit and, and this massive talking point? Very surprised. Very, very surprised. We had no idea it was going to go in the direction that it did. When we were shooting the movie, um, you know, we thought, okay, this could this could go in one of two directions. It could really succeed or it could really fail. And if it fails, then no one will see it and then our careers aren't harmed. <laughs> um, but if it does really well and people love it, then, um, then great. So it, it went in that direction. And, and there's still a lot of people who... who hate it or who don't want to see it or think it's disgusting or whatever that is. But, you know, I think that, um, anybody who talks about a film, whether it's good or bad, um, is a good thing. So, and that's what made the human centipede what it is to this day is the fact that people talk about it so much, whether they, whether they've watched it or not. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's cool that it, it became this worldwide sensation, a total surprise. Um, it, 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 when it first came out, you know, it, it, it definitely pushed uh, a, a lot of boundaries, maybe, you know, both both artistic and, and moral. Uh, and horror films tend, tend to do that a lot. Why do you, why do you think that it, it is within that genre that specifically that, that we see a lot of um, societal boundaries and, and, and morals being being pushed to the edge? Well, I think it can... You can say that for a lot of the genres. I mean, um, I definitely, I think that there's a lot you can do um, with with horror and, and a lot of, uh, from what I, you know, people that I've spoken to and directors that I've worked with, um, they want there to, they want there to be a deeper message um, rather than just something on the surface where, you know, someone's running away from something terrifying. It's, you know, it's, Tom Six, who created The Human Centipede, um, there was a deeper message, whether people knew that or not. Um, I think it's, you know, um, visionary directors, They there is a, uh, an agenda behind what they do, and 
I think it's the viewer, um, it's up to the viewer whether they see that or not, or whether, whether they want to. Um, I know that the film Julia that I did um, recently, uh, people, a lot of people saw more of the, the surface side of it rather than um, the deeper uh, artistic aspect of the, the psychological aspect um, of a woman, um, you know, uh, transforming. Um, from this, you know, like weak victim into an empowering, you know, goddess of a woman um, trying to take back control in her life. And, you know, the Human Centipede films, they, um, you know, it was, uh, Tom Six said that it was about, um, about the wars, um, about, you know, the, he mentioned about Nazis and um, the Germans and, you know, there, it was more about, um, the past and what he's, you know, known as, um, uh, somebody who grew up around that time or, or at least grew up in Europe. And, um, so I don't know. I mean, it's hard to answer that question. Um, because I think that, uh, I don't see it as much as I would like to, um, the artistic kind of, um, societal message in films. Um, uh, if it's out there, then, you know, I'm, I'm missing something or I'm missing out, but, uh, I don't see it as much as I'd like to. Uh, you, you, you mentioned Julia, uh, which is sort of the, your, your other, uh, big, big film, uh, that, that is a, that had the potential to have a, you know, quite, quite a dark, uh, subject. How did you, how did you approach the role in that? Well, I just kind of had to throw myself in, um, you know, it was, I am, attracted to more, uh, darker roles. Um, so for me, it was just really exciting to just give it my all. And, um, it was exciting to play somebody that, uh, was going through like a transformation. Um, you know, there's a lot to work with there and it was, um, challenging and, you know, with a role like that, um, you either go all the way or, you know, you just shouldn't do it. <laughs> so I had to go all the way and, um, working with a director, writer, director like Matthew A. Brown, um, he really helped with that. Um, we were on the same page on, you know, what we wanted to do with the character. Cause the character was the movie, you know, you really follow her from beginning to end, um, her transformation. So yeah, it was, uh, um, it was difficult at some points, you know, there was some really dark, um, places that I had to take myself, but, uh, you know, as an actor, you learn, you know, to just do it and then go read a funny book or something, you know? <laughs> uh, and I know with, with that film, you also, uh, helped out on the producing side of things. You were, you were an associate producer, um, be being involved in, 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 in that capacity. What, what did that teach you about the, the filmmaking process? Quite a lot, actually. I, I, you know, I didn't become an associate producer until uh, the post-production side of it. Um, and, uh, you know, I had um, quite a few contacts in the horror industry and the director happened to be new to the horror industry. So I, I helped, you know, in that respect, uh, putting him in touch with people that I knew that could, um, you know, um, get the film to a certain market of people. And, um, yeah, I, since then, um, you know, I've done a lot of producing like in, in the theater world, I grew up on the stage and, uh, produced my own shows along with a production company that I started. And, um, I love it. I love, um, I love helping to make something happen, you know, independently. Uh, 
I, I'm more of a, a go-getter on that front, you know, especially if I have something to contribute. Um, I don't always have anything to contribute to certain projects, but some, something like Julia, I definitely um, did. So yeah, um, whatever the project might be, it's usually, it's usually something that, um, you know, that I'm already involved with um, as an actress. So obviously it helps me on that front. Um, but uh, I'm starting to create my own work, writing my own films and um, becoming um, a producer in uh, Matthew's new production company as well. So um, Matthew, the director of Julia. Um, but yeah, I love it. And uh, I think nowadays um, within the Hollywood industry, it's important um, to, you know, go out and try to create your own work and do it yourself. Um, for one thing, it's a lot easier nowadays. Um, but for another, you know, there's, there's just a lot of bad scripts going around <laughs> that, uh, that I just don't care to be a part of. And they're not the kind of stories that I want to tell. So I'm trying to create my own. Um, and yeah, it's, it's exciting. I love being on that, that side of things. Uh, and I know you're, you're also an associate producer on Matthew's next film, uh, uh, Albanian Gangster. Uh, yes. What, what, can, what can you tell us about that project? Wow. So, um, Albanian Gangster, um, yeah, it's, it's a very gritty crime drama. Uh, I'm in it as well. I play the, the female lead. Um, you know, I can't say much about it yet. Um, the plot is, is kind of under wraps, um, until the film premieres pretty much. Um, but you know, it's, it's a gritty crime drama, um, set in the Bronx, New York, um, with a lot of the real players, the real, um, I think I'm probably one of only three actual actors in the film. Um, so it's mostly real Albanian gangsters, um, who are, who are playing gangsters. And so, you know, it's a, it's a pretty intense film. It's, it's really a really, really one of the most exciting projects I've ever been on. And, um, I'm very excited for, for you all to see it. Um, and, you know, it's under Matthew A. Brown's um, production company, so I am involved on the producing front and, um, and definitely uh, seeing the process, the post-production process right now. They're in the edit, and um, it's, it's a very exciting film. Uh, and then you're also in another film, uh, The Church, and I know you get to work with another horror icon, uh, Bill Mosley. Uh, what, what's that project been like for you? That project actually um, has been in post production for five years now, uh, so I don't I don't know what's happening with that movie. Um, I shot that right after I shot Julia. Um, uh, I you know it was a very small role in that, so I was only on set for like four days. So I, I have no I have no idea um, if they're even gonna release the film. Um, so I I really can only say that much. But Bill Mosley's great. I love I love him. He was he was funny to work with. Uh, so what you you you've meant you've mentioned Mother a lot, but uh, what other what is your uh, favorite horror film of all time? Um, I think I could say The Shining. Um, The Shining is a film that I would watch any season of the year. Um, not just during like Halloween or something. I think it's a really um, well done movie and, and something I always like to rewatch. Um, uh, 
yeah, I think, um, I also recently liked, um, um, oh my God, now the, the movie title is escaping me. <laughs> I guess that shows you how much I liked it. Um, <laughs> um, Gosh, yeah, I think The Shining. I would say The Shining is my favorite. Um, there aren't a lot of there aren't a lot of great horror movies out there that I that I can say I love or, or would watch multiple times. Once again, from 2017, that was my conversation with actress Ashley C. Williams, best known for starring in the controversial cult horror film. The Human Centipede. Thanks for tuning in to the Endeavors Halloween special. I just finished trick-or-treating with my nephew. There was a lot of great, fun, innovative, safe ways that our neighborhood was coming together to make sure the kids still have fun, can still enjoy themselves during this time. Stay safe out there. Happy trick-or-treating, happy All Hallows Eve, and thanks for tuning in. I will see you next time. Goodbye for now. I always like to have a lot of sex. <laughs>